32 counties, united by people. My name is Andrea and this is United Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. But obviously we can't do that without you. And if you are one of our supporters, it is really humbling and uh, great, making us feel very grateful to have your support. Um, And if you aren't a supporter, it'd be great to have it. Um, If you do listen in and feel like this is worth paying for, um, it would be really super if you could sign up for three euros a month um, as as the minimum one, which is a gorgy little three euros. Um, It means may mean a little to you, but it means a big deal to us. I'll revert to what song that is. Um, but this week we're talking about the freakiness of AI sentiments, um, as claimed by a Google engineer who has been put on leave for saying that a chatbot he was working on had developed human-like qualities. Blake Lamone conversed with the chatbot and then leaked these conversations, saying that the system had an ability to perceive of and express thoughts and feelings equivalent to that of a human child. Does that make it sentient? Is that something to be worried about? We are going to find out. But first, it's the state of the nation. The nation's in a state as per. Um, Eamon Ryan has come out and said that people who can't pay for fuel should pop along to their social welfare office. Um, and there's been a few people who have been like, I popped into the social welfare office, can't get any money for my diesel. Um, so it is interesting to see what that is all about. A, B, who qualifies? C, if I'm just a bit running a bit low, can I pop in and get a little top up for Circle K? Um, but also it kind of does speak to someone who's never been to a, a social welfare office because um, it's not that easy to just pop in and get a little a little fuel top up. Um, there's the protocol going on or the taking away of it as the case may be. <laughs> Uh, God, did I just do a little laugh to myself? Stunning. Um, there is unilateral British action coming from Truth, Truth, who can't pronounce, I can't pronounce her name, and she can't pronounce Taoiseach, even though the Taoiseach's office has been in, in situ since 1937. It's been the name of the head of our government since then, um, and she's still going with Taoiseach. So that's all you really have to know. Um but yeah, she's pushing ahead, promising everything, probably won't deliver it. But by the time that happens, she'll have gotten a promotion um, and the Conservative Party will have fulfilled their needs. Also, in other great UK news, uh, Boris Johnson is threatening to come pull out of the European uh, Human Rights Court, which is um, the only other country that pulled out was Russia um, before it invaded Ukraine. And... Uh, Greece momentarily when it was taken over. So that's really good company for the UK. The descent into fascism continues apace. Um, on the other hand, 
the President of Ireland, President Higgins, got very spicy um, with his criticism of the housing crisis, um, saying housing and the basic needs of society should never have been left to the marketplace. So very targeted with who he's saying that to. Um, And I think it's fair to say that if the President is calling it your fucking shite ideology is disastrous, maybe it's time to admit you fucked up and change tack and that what is happening with housing is a disaster. It is a crisis. Um, however, some people in the government um, who chose to remain nameless and anonymous, which just goes to show you um, they can't stand over what they're saying. Um, but apparently there is uh, a cross line in what Michael D. Higgins has said in the housing policy attack, say furious ministers. And it really does beg it to differ, like beg the question of they're furious about some home truths being said about what is happening in the country that 95% of the people uh, agree with. Then there really is an out of touch uh, situation there when we can all see what's happening. Uh, people can't afford to live. People can't uh, get on the housing market, the he- housing stock, even though we're get- it's being built, it is it is not going into the hands of people who are living there. So uh, me, Michael D. Higgins calling it a great, great failure is true. So you can't really be given out about that. Apparently, though, the anonymous, the brave anonymous people were saying that he's crossed the line and standing on high moral quicksand. It's just bananas that that is the the response to something that is so blatantly obvious um, at this stage. Um, then another one is Dublin Pride have terminated their media partnership with RTE. This follows a deluge of um, of content on Joe Duffy, which was anti-trans, um, led by um, a protest against the appointment of Sarah, who's the head attorney to the National Women's Council. Um, and there was a delay and uh, Dublin Pride have said they were working with the newly formed uh, Transgender Equality Together group um, and they have, yeah, ceased their partnership. There has been like conversations of, can we not just discuss things anymore? And I, and, or like if you're a partner that doesn't give you uh, the right to control the content. And I think it's fairly clear to say that that is not what is happening here. Um, if you are a part, um, a part, if you are engaging in a media partnership with a, with a campaign that is fighting for, uh, equal rights for minorities and then you actually challenge and question those rights how is it possible to move forward as a partnership uh rte and joe duffy and all the uh, people who are on the show are free to say what they want they did and dublin pride are free to um terminate the partnership i think that is totally fair enough In other news, uh, the two-year case that was taken against Karen Cadwallader uh, by Aaron Banks, the result came back at the start of the week and it ruled in her favour, which is a really big relief for um, for everyone, I would say, apart from uh, Russian spies. <laughs> 
look, there's me. There's me about to be sued now. Um, yeah, the pieces that she was sued over was um, insinuating that he had links to Russia. And um, now that has all been lifted, which like she would have been responsible for, like I think a million in damages or whatever. So um, the fact that Aaron Banks was suing an individual journalist is very uh, dark and uh, is not really where you want to be for press freedom. Um, and yeah, I think a good result came back. Yeah, she probably would have lost it if she'd taken that case in Ireland. <laughs> That's the mad thing with our with our libel and defamation laws, you know. Or if or if she would have lost it if the case had been taken here, probably. Like it's 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 so it's so terrible for press freedom and for her own personal stress that she was dragged through this for the mm. last couple of years. We just need to reform libel laws across the across the board and politicians need to stop suing. Is there media organizations. Uh, becoming a bigger interest in that now that Sinn Féin have started to use them as Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have used them in the past? Yeah, I wrote a piece about it a while ago about how um, Mary Lee MacDonald was kind of um, wrong to sue RTE because everybody knows that the impact that that has on press freedom and that if politicians spent more time trying to reform or libel defamation laws than using them, uh, we might get in a in, in a you know, it'd be in a better place. But it's this kind of stuff around like, um, you know, what's called slaps, you know, strategic lawsuits against public participation that are a kind of lawsuit that kind of works to um, limit freedom of speech, basically, or, or shut down um, certain journalistic uh, investigations or whatever. So anything that limits that kind of stuff um, is bad. And fair play to Carl Cadwalder for staying the course. And finally, in the State of the Nation... Cork County Council uh, yesterday, Monday, passed a vote of no confidence in on board Planola. Dun, dun, dun. It's gone official. Um, if you haven't listened already to our byline episode last week with Mick Clifford, um, there's a lot of context in the on board Planola stuff there. Um, but yeah, it's moved into officialdom. Votes are being passed. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens. Mm. Oh, can I add something to the State of the Nation? Absolutely. It's your, it's your podcast. <laughs> Pat Lee, he had a piece in the Irish Times at the weekend about um, Fine Gael's existential crisis. I literally tweeted it last night going, if anyone needs it to be cheered up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, obviously this is always going to come, right? Because um, Fine Gael, you know, don't have a purpose really uh, that they can that they can um, openly communicate. They do. Get up early in the morning. Yeah. So uh, the first, you know, the first kind of aspect is that how Leo Varker is, you know, taken to repeating the failed messaging that uh, irked everyone. I suppose it's, um, that's a result of somebody who doesn't really have any ideas um, and who kind of seemingly the party, you know, can't relate to people. So they think that we're like, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just appeal to our core voters and like annoy everyone even more in the in the process, thus mobilizing them to essentially vote against us. Um, you know, great, great tactics there. But the other part that I found fascinating was um Pat was writing about uh the kind of the party machine on the ground and in one instance where basically like n- you know, the rats are leaving the sinking ship effectively. Like everybody is just bailing. The party machine on the ground at the grassroots is breaking down. The members aren't active, you know, and it's it's really kind of um, indicative of uh, 
I suppose, a real kind of privileged instrument that is Fine Gael, that when power is potentially there, loads of people kind of come on board. But when your team is losing, you just piss off, you know, because there's no broader mission, I suppose, um, or broader ideology beyond self-interest and, you know, making money and things like that and getting into power to make money. Um, But one of the really interesting things was there was one particular... He was writing about the different kind of Fine Gael local meetings that they were having. Mm. And there was one particular one where basically they put posters up all over the constituency. Constituency isn't named. Posters all over the constituency. There were like party bigwigs, like senior party members going to be speaking at this um, meeting. And they put thousands, they've like thousands of leaflets all around the constituency and 10 people showed up. So if that doesn't show you how compounded Fine Gael's struggle is going to be, if they aren't going to have people on the ground canvassing, you know, doing all that stuff. You know, people aren't going to be out out there wanting to be out there getting abuse and stuff like that. I thought that was really interesting about how their kind of grassroots has has broken down in stark contrast with with, um, Sinn Féin, obviously. Uh, I have two more things to add, actually. Go on. Now that we're in the zone. Uh, The Sock Downs conference looked really interesting and a lot of takeouts from that were very... Uh, good takeouts, specifically Keena Callahan was saying uh, their plan for housing, which was literally, it sounded absolutely delicious. It was literally like um, get rid of bill to rent, like no need for student accommodation, get rid of institutional investors, um, like a tax on vacant homes uh, and then the favourable tax treatment of rates and investment funds, regulation of short-term lending platforms, improved security for renters and a three-year ban on rent increases. That sounds delicious. Yeah, that sounds like right all there in one. Um, and also, in comparison, Fianna Fáil, uh, Dara O'Brien rewriting the rules of uh, of raffles so that it's illegal for uh, political parties to do a raffle for fundraising. And then he's shoving that into another bill to get it over the line so uh, the parties can still continue to fundraise. Oh, yeah, this came up. This came up before, didn't it? With Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil when they were just like, just buy this little raffle ticket now. It is 200 euro <laughs> and it's not fundraising. It's uh, the way he's put it in. It's in the like final stages of a bill where you kind of make minimum changes, but introducing a full new section of like, actually political parties can have this raffle <laughs> is just very indicative of, of the self-interest. And it just is a bit sickening, to be honest. It's real moon chat legislation, isn't it? It's just like talking about something else and then all, all of a sudden raffles. Raffles, put that in. <laughs> yeah. Cambodia. Okay, let's get on to the main bit. I'm I'm hungry first. Now, you may have read um, about the freaky story about a Google engineer being put on leave for making claims that an AI chatbot he had been working on had developed sentiments. That is the ability or capacity to experience feelings, thoughts, and sensations. Uh, This leap from smart machine to thinking machine has been pursued for a while, either directly or as a byproduct of increasingly complex and human-like artificial intelligence development. In recent years, ethicists have been engaged in robust discourse about how far AI should go. Are humans opening an unclosable Pandora's box? Wouldn't be the first time. Or is it just people being alarmist about engineering and technological development? William Radoff is an assistant professor of philosophy at Trinity College, having studied philosophy at Cambridge, 
Cognitive Neuroscience at University College London and his PhD in Philosophy at Yale. He, his research interests like in ethics, lie in ethics and the philosophy of the mind. His current project research project relates to the ethics and regulation of artificial intelligence. So he is very well positioned to answer our questions on this topic. First of all, William, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so I work on uh, the ethics of, ethics of AI. I've recently been writing a lot about questions like, uh, should self-driving cars be legally mandated on public roads in a future where they're kind of affordable, widely available, and safer than, say, human-driven cars? I'm also very interested in questions like, in the future, if there are AI that are generally intelligent and rational, what kind of moral standing would they have? What kind of rights would they have, for example? Uh, would, we, would we be able to use them as mere tools, as slaves or servants? Or you know, would, they, would that be equivalent to kind of a slavery of a human being, for example? Okay, so AI is definitely a, a very prominent feature there. Um, and we've all heard of AI. Uh, we've seen it in the movies. Hello, Terminator 2, in as far back as 1991. But what would you say is the current definition of AI and how did it become your area of expertise from a philosophy perspective? So artificial intelligence, in essence, is the use of computers and machines to mimic the problem-solving and decision-making capabilities of the human mind. So there are all these uh, capacities that historically have been had only by minded beings such as humans or other animals. So, for example, the capacity to detect features of the environment perceptually and respond appropriately to them, to process language, to recognize words or respond to commands. So the project of building AI is just the project of replicating these capacities in machines or artifacts, things made by us and not by nature. So some kind of good examples of AI is uh, you know, machine vision, where machines can see the world to some degree. So barcode reading at the supermarket checkout would be a simple example of that. Or self-driving car technology, when AI can drive a vehicle from its initial location to the inputted uh, destination. Or even online advertising on Facebook, that's powered by AI nowadays. The AI makes a decision based on your behavior on Facebook over what ad to show you. As for me, I don't have any particularly interesting origin story for my interest in AI. I've always just been interested in it. Uh, as you mentioned, I have uh, you know, a background both in philosophy and in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, I've always been interested in mind and cognition. I've also always been interested in ethics as well. So the ethics of AI is a nice intersection of those interests. Um, you've already mentioned how AI is currently being used today. Um, but um, we're, we're, I suppose we kind of are aware of it a bit more and more, like the likes of Facebook advertising, where people are turning off from advertising and find it a bit freaky when uh, ads follow them around their Facebooks. Would that be kind of where you start drawing on the ethics of how much information we're giving away? Or is that not a thing? Yeah, so that's where the ethical questions start to arise. So yeah, so on kind of Facebook, for example, I mean, I didn't really realize this. I was naive about this until I got more interested in it. But Facebook, Facebook's whole business model is basically just 
harvesting data from their users. So this data includes um, you know, their location, where they live, their kind of age, their gender, who they're friends with, but also data like, you know, what they kind of pause on when they're scrolling down their screens and so on. And uh, Facebook's in the advertising business. So um, the way they make money is there are third-party advertisers who want to target their, their uh, adverts of a particular demographics. And Facebook sells advertising slots to these people. They're like, look, we can target your ads exactly to the people uh, who you want them, who, who you want to see these ads. Um, so as they say in, in the kind of tech business, if the product is free, you're the product. Um, and where the ethics kind of comes into that, I suppose, is that, um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I think many people are a bit naive as to, uh, what's going on when they're using Facebook. Um, like pe people don't really read the terms and conditions. So people might not be fully aware that, uh, that's what's going on when they're using Facebook. Do you think it should be more uh, it should be more obvious that AI is being used to track users? Is that kind of the ethics of it? Is that where the AI, if you know that AI is happening, it's up to you. Whereas if you're unaware of it, then it's kind of it, the ethics are questionable. Yeah. So I mean, lots of people are concerned about. Um, like Facebook's acquisition of uh, consent from its users. So when you sign the terms and conditions on Facebook, you know, you sign away um, you know, kind of data rights, essentially. Um, and that's problematic if people, there's a transparency issue of people fully aware of what they're um, signing up to when they sign up to Facebook, given that like most people don't read the terms and conditions. And there's even like, like if you are naive about Facebook's business model, you might be able to read through their terms and conditions, but not really understand them. And maybe if you lacked a law degree uh, or the capacity to kind of pass the kind of sentences which those terms and conditions are written in, you also might be able to read the terms and conditions, but come away not fully understanding what you are signing up for. So that's a kind of one ethical issue that arises with respect to Facebook's business model. Um, on a different tech giant, uh, recently the whole drama at Google where the engineer Blake Lemone, I feel like he has French uh, uh, ancestors, uh, who believed after hundreds of interactions with a cutting edge, unreleased AI system called La MDA. Is that the way you pronounce it? Lamada? I'm guessing it's Lambda. Lambda. Uh, he believed the program had achieved a le level of consciousness and it had become sentient. Um, but it has been put, he has been put on leave by Google who are adamant that there's nothing to worry about. What's the tea there? Is there anything to worry about? Is, is the sentient AI alive? So I would say that the overwhelming majority of philosophers, scientists and engineers working on AI today would say that Lambda, this, um, which stands for the language model for dialogue applications that Google have made, is not sentient or conscious. So Lambda is just a, a very big language model trained on you know, one and a half trillion words of web text and publicly available dialogue data. Uh, these language systems or chatbots can imitate the conversational exchanges found in the millions of sentences of data that they've been trained on. They are tasked essentially with 
finding patterns and predicting what word or words, what sentence should come next. So it sounds like a human talking when you talk to Lambda because it's trained on human conversation data, but it's really just a very sophisticated parrot. Um, so this is completely unlike how humans are thought to generate conversation or answer questions. So we aren't just beings that have read a billion transcripts of conversations and learn what kind of sentences are most likely to follow other sentences. That's not how I know right now what to say in response to your questions. So the way kind of humans work is we have perceptual systems that give us information about the external world. We know a lot about the external world. I know that you know, cats are animals, they look a certain way, they make a certain meow noise. And I grasp concepts of all these things in the world that I've experienced, concepts of cats and dogs, trains, bicycles, you know, the government, the EU. And I can put together these concepts to produce thoughts or representations of the world that are something like mental pictures. And I can associate these thoughts or mental pictures with the noises or squiggles on paper that constitute language. So I can associate my thought that snow is white with the French sentence, la neige est blanche. And that's how I understand spoken French. There's some kind of association in my mind between hearing the noise, la neige est blanche, and the mental representation, snow is white. But chatbots or language models like Lambda, they don't grasp any of this conceptual knowledge of the nature of the world that we humans all know, they don't associate any of the English sentences that they spit out with concepts or thoughts or mental pictures of the world. Consequently, they really don't understand anything that they're saying. Um, they're just, yeah, they're just kind of, uh, it's just, they're just parrots, essentially. Uh, I know you can't answer for, for Blake, but what do you think set the alarm bells ringing for someone who's worked in that um, role for, as an expert that he would risk what has happened to him, I suppose, going on leave by setting alar alarm bells off around the world? I can't really comment on mm. what Blake in particular is thinking. I just think he's probably confused. Um, it's, it seems like everyone else who works at Google, or, well, the official, uh, you know, the Google officials mm. do not seem convinced at all that uh, Lambda is conscious. Uh, in fact, they say that there's plenty of abundant evidence that Lambda is not conscious from their interactions with Lambda. And what if Lambda was conscious? What would what would be alarming about that if it was? Um, and is it possible for that to happen? Yeah, so I certainly think that it is possible for AI to be conscious. And I think that the, uh, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of um, philosophers of mind and cognitive scientists who think about consciousness do think that it would be possible for an AI to be um, sentient. So I think that the reason why uh, you know, most philosophers and people who think about this do think that it's possible for AI to be conscious is that they think that we conscious beings, we human beings, they think that we are conscious in virtue of the functioning of our brains. So um, our brains are kind of machines that transform input from the environment, the world that we see before us, into outputted behavior. Um, and they think that what makes us conscious is the way our brains function, 
you know, and not what they happen to be made of. They're made of biological stuff, but what they, what, they think that what makes us conscious is how this biological stuff functions. Um, so since we could, in principle, build an artificial duplicate of the human brain, something that perfectly emulated the functioning of the human brain, it follows that there could be an artificial being that is conscious because what makes our brains uh, such that they give rise to consciousness is the way that they function. And these artificial brains would function in exactly the same way. So it follows that they should also give rise to consciousness. So if, for example, there was an artificial brain that was a neuron for neuron duplicate of my brain, where instead of like having biological neurons, it had some artificial substitute, like wiring, for example, or kind of electrical circuits, then it would follow not only that it was conscious, but it would also have the same thoughts and feelings, hopes and dreams as me, because I have all my thoughts and feelings, hopes and dreams and so on in virtue of the way my brain is organized and the way it functions. And its artificial brain would be organized and function in the very same way. So this is why I think that, well, this is why uh, you know, the majority of philosophers and people who think about this question do think that AI could be conscious. Of course, in my experience, many people are stubbornly resistant to this idea, but I think it does enjoy kind of near universal support amongst philosophers and other experts who think about this. Who think about this. Where does the soul fit into all of that? Am I being a hippie asking that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, not at all. Um, so some people, many people are materialists who think that our soul, our consciousness is nothing, nothing over and above the functioning of our brain. And there are other people who are not materialists. Uh, they are dualists, for example. They think that our consciousness, our soul is something over and above the physical world. And they think that even though our soul or consciousness is something over and above the functioning of our brain, they think there is some kind of like you know, intimate law-like connection in nature between certain kinds of functionings or information processings that occur in human brains and consciousness. So they would say, uh, if you were to make uh, you know, an artificial brain, like in a robot, like C-3PO, for example, uh, this kind of law of nature would kick in such that in the same way as my brain has consciousness associated with it, but mm-hmm. the same as it, this, this AI would also have uh, consciousness associated with it. I mean, another way of putting this point is from a theological point of view, um, suppose there was someone who believes in God and says that our souls are over and above our brains. And they think that God has like made it the case that like each of our brains is kind of intimate related to our souls. Uh, you know, to such a theologically minded person, you might say, well, would, why would God associate a soul with our brains, but not with the artificial brains of this robot over here? Like it would be arbitrary, surely, for like God to bless us with having a soul, but not with the, the, the robot. Now, of course, theists may not be convinced by that, but I think it's one kind of consideration which um, might be found convincing by some theists. And maybe our this is, I'm positing here. Maybe our connection to nature and where we've come from creates that soul or whatever other word you want to call it, and that's where we get like judgments, like right and wrong, that are inherent to us that aren't mechanical. Is that just dreaming too? Wait, can can you say that? Explain that question again, sorry. 
like maybe the fact that we're the fact where human thinking over mechanical thinking is that we have a connection to nature and that we come from it and that that is where our our reasoning and right and wrong comes from whereas when it's mechanical it's based on on a formulaic approach as opposed to a feeling or is it is feeling as relevant to ai um there's a lot packed into that question that's a big question <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's like seven different topics all encoded into that question um, she thinks big she thinks big um, what would need to happen then for sentiments to occur and if we are in this world where we're like nervous maybe about sentiments happening and it's maybe an old-fashioned understanding of sentiments is the fact that some people can believe something is sentient as dangerous or could be potentially fooled into thinking what an AI is. Do you know, does it, does it like, is it as, is it as strong a point for AI that people believe it is sentient that it could actually be sentient? Um, yes, I think so. The question you asked before was um, a kind of metaphysical one. Like, is it possible for an AI to be sentient or conscious? Could there be a conscious artificial intellect that has feelings and thoughts, but is man-made? I think the question you're now answering is this epistemological one. How could we know whether or not an AI is conscious? And what are the kind of ethical issues uh, arising out of that? So with respect to the first one, I said something about that before, about... Um, most philosophers and neuroscientists thinking that AI could be conscious because they think the functioning of our brains that makes us conscious and AI could function in the same way. With respect to this uh, knowledge question, how do we know whether an AI is conscious or not? Um, yeah, it's a very interesting one. And so the great computer scientist Alan Turing, one of the founders of his discipline, he wrote an important philosophical paper on exactly this question. So in essence, he proposed that we should have behavioral criteria for determining whether or not a machine is conscious or thinking. So his reasoning here is that we don't determine that other human beings are conscious by scanning their brains or by using some sci-fi sentience scope. That's not how I know that you're conscious now or how you know that I'm conscious. We've never seen each other's brains. No, but like we can determine that other people, you know, such as my colleagues, for example, I can determine that, that they are conscious by observing their behavior. And I can determine that the books on my shelf or like, you know, my water bottle is not conscious or sentient, again, just by looking at how they behave. You know, my colleagues and other humans, they behave in certain ways that are indicative of their, you know, of their intelligence and their consciousness. But my books don't behave in those ways. They just sit there. And similarly, like, you know, the leaves blowing about in the wind, they don't behave in any way that's indicative of consciousness or thought. But the fly buzzing around my office does behave in a way that's indicative of some degree of, like, mentality. It can avoid my swats when I try to, like, swat it. It, can, it seeks out sources of nourishment. But kind of Turing thinks that by symmetry are criteria for determining whether a machine or an AI is thinking or conscious should be behavioral. 
we should just look at how they behave. Um, so oh, in, in the Google example, that kind of seemed like it was conscious in its behavior. And if you're not well versed in AI, how can you make the decision that it is AI or not or conscious? Yeah. So, so, um, so Turing suggests a procedure that he calls the, the imitation game. Um, and has been has come to be has and has come to be known as the Turing test. So when Turing's originally talking about it, he says, suppose that we have you know, a real person, a computer program like an AI, and an interrogator. And the interrogator is in a room separate from the real person and the machine. And the interrogator can only interact with them by typing questions into you know a computer and then the human being or the AI will respond to those questions uh, by kind of typing out responses on the screen of his computer. And the kind of object of the game is for the interrogator to figure out which of the two things it's talking to is the real human being and which is the machine, just by asking them these typed out questions and looking at the responses. And the machine is programmed to try to convince the interrogator that um, that the interrogator is is talking to uh, a human being when it's talking to the the AI or the machine, and the the goal of the other person is to try to help the interrogator to correctly identify that they are in fact the real person, and the other thing they're talking to is the machine. And Turing held that we should hold that a machine is conscious and thinking if a normal adult human couldn't tell the difference between the computer and the person based just upon their answers. If a normal adult human being would have no way of knowing who's the, the human being and who's, who's the computer program. So this is a kind of similar to what's going on with the kind of Google Lambda chatbots. Um, the Google software engineer who's become convinced that it's conscious has become convinced because he's asking it questions and it's responding to him. And he's convinced based on the, the content of the responses that you know, the being that, it's, that he is talking to is uh, sentient and intelligent. But most philosophers who have thought about the Turing test don't think that it's um, you know, a sufficient condition for intelligence. They don't think that a machine passing this Turing test is enough for us to be confident that it's intelligent or conscious. So one reason why they think this is because they think that a clearly non-conscious, clearly non-intelligent computer could pass the Turing test. Um, so many believe that this or has already happened. So um, there was a computer scientist called Joseph Weissenbaum who programmed a chatbot called Eliza back in the 1960s. And Eliza simulated a psychiatrist asking questions of his or her patients. So what people would do is they would type in something to Eliza. They would say like, oh, you know, like you know, I saw my father yesterday or something. And then Eliza was programmed to find a key word in the kind of sentence that had been inputted and then kind of ask a question based on that keyword. So it would say something like, well, tell me more about your father. And then you would type something about your father and then Eliza would have some kind of you know, jack-in-the-box um, procedure where it would generate a follow-up question. Uh, so Eliza was clearly not conscious or intelligent. It was just following this kind of relatively simple 
procedure for asking questions. But many early users of ELISA, including uh, Weissenbaum's secretary at his office, were convinced that ELISA could think and was sentient when they were kind of conversing, quote unquote, with um, ELISA. So so here's a, a, a clear example of there being a kind of jack-in-the-box language program that clearly isn't intelligent or conscious, but kind of normal people are becoming convinced through talking to it that it actually is um, intelligent and consciousness. But most people would just say that that's just a mirage. And so I think that the people who are skeptical of um, Lemoyne's or Lemoyne's uh, claims at Google just think that he's been tricked in the same way as Weissenbaum's secretary were tricked by the Eliza bot back in the 1960s. So if that is all kind of where like, I feel like this has exploded um, worldwide as a conversation and there's been such interest in it because there's a fear behind it of what the potential of AI is. So if we're not just afraid of it becoming conscious or sentient, because how do we know if it's able to answer whatever, how when should we get afraid that it, the AI, like in the movies, is going to turn on us and try and kill us all? Um, I don't think we should be afraid anytime soon um, or into the kind of foreseeable future. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be thinking very hard and seriously about these kind of existential risks facing humanity from AI research. Um, it's it's clearly the case. I mean, I mean, one example of risks posed by AI to humanity come from the ever increasing use of AI in the military. Um, you know, the military wants to create fighter jets that are um, flown by AI. It'll have lightning reflexes and be far better kind of dogfighters than any human being. And other kind of you know, robot warriors, essentially, that will replace kind of human personnel in the military. And you could, you know, easily imagine, um, like, you know, uh, such AI going rogue and, you know, uh, you know committing war crimes, for example. in which case there are accountability issues of, like, you know, who do you hold responsible for this war crime? Um, so, so, yeah, so there are lots of um, very legitimate worries to be had about the uh, ever-increasing use of AI in the military. I mean, another thing that philosophers have been very concerned about is the singularity. So um, the kind of singularity is the point in which there's an intelligence explosion. Like we can make AI, let's suppose that we succeed in making AI that is as intelligent as a human, that's generally intelligent in the same way as you or me. Uh, there's a, there's the, the natural thought that you could simply iterate that process and humans or the AI itself could like make a next generation of even more intelligent AI. And then that next generation of even more intelligent AI could make even, even more intelligent AI. And it could iterate in this process such that you end up with like super intelligent AI that is like, you know, whose intellects far outstrip ours. And then there are worries about like, you know, if you know, there's, this, we, you know, there's this being that's been created that's far more intelligent than us. Like, how do we ensure that it's um, it shares our values, that it values us, and it doesn't pose some kind of risk towards us? And I mean, the risks there aren't simply you know how do we make sure that this AI isn't hostile towards us. The risks also arise if the AI is indifferent towards us. So, for example, you might program an AI to do something like 
I don't know, um, count all the blades of grass on earth. And the AI, uh, who, and this is its only goal, and, yeah. and the AI might realize that the fact that there are human beings around mowing their lawns changes the number of um, blades of grass on the earth over time. And they might go, well, I won't be able to calculate how many blades of grass there are. Or I'll be better able to calculate how many blades of grass there are if I just kill all the humans. And so that, that is an issue in which like, an AI that is neutral towards us could be very dangerous to us. Um, if we, if, if, if it realized that, that our elimination promoted its goals. Is there good things about AI? <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. I think AI, um, will revolutionize like the practice of science, for example, like, you know, using machine learning models to, you know, help cure cancer and other things. I mean, I mean, looking you know, in, in like, one kind of you know, potentially kind of near future kind of benefit of AI is self-driving cars. If indeed they turn out to be safer than human-driven cars and are affordable and widely available, um, you know, millions of people uh, die on like the roads worldwide. And if the kind of claims of uh, the self-driving car manufacturers turn out to be correct, then we could, you know, save huge numbers of people and avoid you know, life altering injuries and many other people. So that's one example of AI being a, you know, a boon to humanity. So it kind of feels like AI, like any scientist, scientific uh, discovery is a good thing once it's in the right hands and has enough, I suppose, oversight and isn't just kind of kept in secret development to specific people. So can you ask that question again? I suppose good good science, scientific discoveries are all well and good until ownership creeps in and they are kind of uh, led by, you hope it's not a nefarious company or um, person leading its development that it is for the greater good, essentially. Like anything. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be... You know, if there was some kind of James Bond villain who was intent upon creating AI for his nefarious purposes, then that would be terrible. Um, and uh, yeah, we should hope that the people in charge of creating AI have you know, the common good um, as one of their aims. As I believe that, you know, or oversight and regulation. <laughs> yeah, and oversight and regulation as well. Yeah. Um, I am fascinated by all this and like love this conversation. If people would like to know more about this, there is a way that they could actually study it with you. Yes, that's true. So um, at Trinity College Dublin this September, I am teaching a course called Big Data, Artificial Intelligence and Ethics. So this is a continuous professional development course you don't have to be an undergraduate or a postgraduate or in any way affiliated with Trinity to take this course. Uh, and this course will focus upon kind of ethical and public policy issues that arise out of um, kind of AI. So some of the questions that we will be asking would be, do tech companies violate our right to privacy when they harvest our data through their products? Um, 
And is it morally objectionable for them to use this data to nudge us into interacting in certain ways with their platforms? And um, can automated algorithmic decision-making deliver us a future free of human bias? Um, and what, if anything, should we do about all of this? You know, is, gov is government regulation appropriate? Uh, so these are some of the questions that we'll, we'll be kind of asking on this course. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us, William. I am, I'm hooked. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. No, thank you for interviewing me. That was great. What's getting in the sea, Andrea? I have a dual sea trip today. For, firstly, um, a, a sad thing and a literal sea get in moment. Um, because of our capitalist ways and trying to mine the world for every little bit of profitability, ocean temperatures continue to rise and that has been blamed as hundreds of baby penguins have washed up dead on the shore in New Zealand. That's very sad. That's me with my heart breaking there. It's so like, it's so frustrating. Um, and then secondly, also frustrating, uh, the impact of the labor shortage in the world. Um, there has been a lot of uh, conversations and articles and the whole shebang about this. And I just don't think the proper correlations are being made with what is actually happening in the fact that um, we've created cities and towns that are unlivable uh, no one's able to nobody who can do the services we need to live can afford to do them anymore and all we're left with is um, overpriced student accommodation overpriced um, housing overpriced everything and the narrative that's so, so obviously we have a problem with nowhere to live and uh, Killian Woods did a story this week about how businesses are buying up a com like buying up properties for their staff to live in, which basically sounds like tenements for workers now because it's getting so bad. And so much of the narrative is around, well, pay your staff better if you can't get uh, staff. Whereas I think when you look at how small businesses operate, that it is a case of you can't keep putting uh, your, your wages up and up and up and up and up until it's out of reach and then everything just gets more and more expensive inflation happens and uh, there is a conversation about the rise in minimum wage needing to happen which then in turn rises to price increases for services and products which then increase uh, fuels um, inflation but the bit that's missing seems to be the fact that the government are making so much tax on everything at this stage. There was an article in the Indo about a petrol station who had kept their prices low all the time to get footfall and are currently making 0.3 cent profit on each litre, whilst the government is making 92 cent on each litre because of taxation. So the, there's a disconnect between the rise in prices and the rise in income that's going to government and also the, the lack of housing in services and uh, people to do them that want to do them and are happy doing them and had a great quality of life um, and we can't just keep putting uh, wages up to match mm. this crazy inflation we need to change the inflation yeah I think it's really crazy how the conversation even amongst <clears throat> amongst unions amongst 
opposition politicians, amongst um, journalists, amongst all this stuff around cost of living, which is which is inflation um, related, is all about how to give people more money and how to get more money into people's pockets when that fuels inflation in this mm. current context. And it's like, why aren't we talking about getting costs that we're in control of down? And why, and, so, and like the primary one of those being the cost of rent, because we're not in control of global energy prices for the most part. We're not in control of the supply, supply chain disruption in China and South Asia. We're not in control of building materials becoming really expensive for all these various different reasons that we know. But we are in control of what rent costs in our country. So the fact that the state, and I saw Pascal Donahue saying like, oh, there's limits of what we can do for the cost of living. It's like, no, there's limits on what you want to do ideologically. Because if tomorrow the government said, you know what, we're going to freeze institutional investors. We're going to, in terms of their participation in the housing market, we're going to introduce rent control. We're going to introduce tenants' rights. We're going to int- introduce long leases. We're going to introduce all this kind of stuff. To we're actually, basically going to be sock depths. <laughs> we're we're going, going to introduce, well, normal normal stuff, yeah. normal stuff, what they have in loads of other countries. But instead, we've been copying the ridiculous behaviour of um, housing in the UK and America instead of looking at Germany, at Switzerland, or like, you know, Germany in particular, but also France and also other countries, right? It's like, we're in control of that. You address the amount of money in people's salaries that they're paying in rent tomorrow and and all of a sudden people aren't asking for salary hikes. They're not making demands on employers. They're not like feeling the pinch as much from goods and services because 40, 50% of their income is no longer spent on rent. And then the people who are providing services like builders, the cost of all that kind of stuff can actually live in prox- proximity to where that demand is and therefore the price of that goes down. So the the absolute ideological failure to provide not even affordable, but like normal, non-extreme rent price to people in this country is literally a psychosis that Fine Gael has. Like it is, it is collapsing the party. It is going to make them lose the election. It is benefiting no one in this country apart from institutional investors and international developers. So like, what is it? Why are they so into it? Why are they so refusing about addressing what is right in front of their faces? Another thing I think we need to bring into that conversation is the fact that we've completely devalued um, service suppliers um, and that we have this uh, sole focus on um, third level education and higher education being the solution and uh, tech jobs being the, the only way to be successful. Um, and really taking away what it means to have a, a delicious life, providing services to people in your community, um, which essentially is the basis of life, which we have completely taken the value out of that, especially with the pandemic when there was no security and so many people had to leave those roles to get a desk job because it was the only way to keep um, an income going. So yeah, I think we need to re-market uh, and reposition the joy that can be had from these jobs and the fact that, yes, there was a lack of security in a COVID lockdown, but there's a lack of security in other places that 
may happen. So you just don't know, you know, correct. Okay. That can all get in the season. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now it is time for It's Bananas. Now, it's bananas uh, this week. Um, I am finding it absolutely bananas that the uh, debate that is opening up around the existence of trans people is happening um, seven years post the introduction of the Gender Recognition Act, which happened in 2015. Uh, we've had little to no issue um, with since that has been introduced in Ireland um, amongst women, amongst feminists, amongst uh, anyone essentially um, in the two years from 2015 to 2017 only 270 people availed of it so it is a tiny tiny minority um, that are using uh, the act for self-ID but the fact that it has opened up a conversation on Liveline on the national broadcaster that uh, happened uh, because Sarah a trans woman who is the head of Tenny was elected to the National Women's Council Board um, eight women decided to protest, which is their prerogative. Um, however, uh, they had a show about it, but the show, the story ran for three days on Liveland, which is really unheard of. Um, but it's actually really even makes it made even worse that it is especially during Pride Month. Um, RT are also the partners of Pride um, and how this has seems to be um, imported as a conversation. Um, on Monday, however, Trans Equality Together launched, which is a coll- collaboration of Tenny, LGBT and Belong To, um, to kind of stop the misinformation that's being spread, to present stories of trans people who are living their lives, people who have trans people and trans children um, within them. Um, I would, however, hope that there is an inclusion of protection for trans sex workers who are the most vulnerable within this minority. Um, But yeah, good to see trans equality together being launched. Mm. I mean, this issue is is so frustrating for me um, from a journalistic perspective. And I just really wish that journalists, broadcasters, researchers, producers, presenters, all that kind of stuff would actually educate themselves on the context of why we've ended up here. And instead, what's happening is the really, really regrettable scenario where a debate which has been distorted, um, made toxic, um, manipulated and uh, developed into uh, equal parts moral panic and disinformation, that that is now being uh, potentially replicated uh, in Ireland. So that is nothing to do with the actual (laughs) issues around trans rights, right? So what we're actually seeing, and obviously loads of people were kind of fearing this and hopefully it won't come to pass because I think Irish people um, have a good degree of, or people in Ireland have a good degree of cop on, um, that we're actually seeing journalists wittingly or unwittingly for clicks and audience or for, you know, contrarianism or for what whatever else or for because they're just like ignorant of, of the issues now replicating something that has just been already uh, so far down the rabbit hole and 
it's so frustrating for me, like as, as a lesbian journalist, because lesbians are being shoved into this quote unquote debate as somehow victims of trans rights progress, which is ridiculous. Um, and the kind of uh, drive of certain cis straight women to position themselves as like saviors and protectors of like queer women and dykes and lesbians and stuff is just ridiculous. And what's, you know, Brenda Power wrote, you know, unsurprisingly, um, she's taken several swipes at the LGBT community in the past, wrote a really kind of obnoxious, um, uninformed column uh, in the Sunday Times at the weekend. And, and you could just see how little she kind of knows about this, that this is just like some other kind of contrarian, like tedium for her to hitch her wagon to when in actual fact, like she's using things like, oh, you know, these people are now called TERFs, like as if TERFs is a new term. And it just really speaks to like, if you're actually going to talk about this, if you're going to enter into um, a, a discussion that has already been so toxified for various reasons, you better know what you're talking about. And it is so irritating to me as a dyke that you have all these people jumping in, replicating these broken contours of a manipulated, manufactured and uninformed um, quote unquote debate or discourse in the UK or in America without knowing any of the context, without knowing any of the history without like knowing nothing about, you know, the lesbian feminism of the seventies, without knowing the context of lesbian separatism, knowing nothing about the Michigan women's festival, knowing nothing about the HP bathroom bills in North Carolina, knowing nothing about how these uh, like quote unquote liberal issues are manipulated um, in, in, by certain people to to seed division in, you know, quote unquote, Western liberal democracy and particularly amongst, you know, these kind of so-called wedge issues that are basically used. And, you know, this idea that uh, trans people are taking from some finite pool of rights by merely asserting their existence, that that is damaging uh, feminism or women's cis women's rights is a total nonsense. And the misdirection that is going on that people won't actually, you know, as Sinead O'Connor said, fight the real enemy, that they won't actually look at cis male violence, that they won't actually look at the, uh, you know, the tactics of divide and conquer within feminism that have been so successful, um, you know, in, in, in some eras also with, cis straight women elbowing lesbians out of the feminist movement, you know, like cis straight women have traditionally been quite poor allies to lesbians. Thank you very much. So when you see all these people just falling in without educating themselves, without understanding what's actually going on from a journalistic perspective is just bad. It's just bad, unprofessional, uninformed work. That's before you even get into all of the weird shit that is going on in this like amplified, manufactured, bizarre kind of discourse where people are seemingly like radicalized um, and are, you know, developing um, points of view that echo far right conspiracy. You know, this the, the, the context of like, um, you know, the great replacement theory and this kind of thing of like, oh, well, we're being shoved out and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, you're not. And people need to like examine not even what do I think about this, but why am I thinking about this? 
what has happened online and in discourse that suddenly something that impacts a really, really small number of people is somehow this blown out of proportion thing. Why is that? Because it's bananas. Yeah, but I, I, I feel so exercised about it from a, a, like a, from a journalistic perspective. Like I've run, run a workshop last year about trying to give this context to, to journalists in Ireland about what was going on and for us to be replicating the talking points or for people to be replicating the talking points of the far right in America, fundamentalist extreme extreme edge of the Republican Party, fundamentalist Christian discourse and, you know, colonialist feminism from the UK that, you know, is fundamentally rooted in seeing everything as territory, including the borders of the body and gender and so on. Like, cop on. It's it's extraordinarily frustrating. And I know people feel, you know, hurt or pass by or feel like this is a battle to fight. It's like fight the real enemy. Trans people are not taking your rights like that is is a ludicrous thing to assume. And, you know, the Irish media needs to cop on, because if you're not actually understanding the context and how this how this discourse has been distorted and if you're not seeing the, how the the contours of a of a disinformation campaign, you know, and if you don't understand everything that has happened from the sixties and seventies onwards, you know, because it's very clear that progress and trans rights, as you said, Andrea, in Ireland, was not an issue for the population. But when this debate, quote unquote, debate, which originated as something very specific in lesbian feminism in America, leapfrogs to the UK and all of these so-called feminists are waking up with being lauded by the far right, you know, by, by absolute like extremists, essentially. Do you know, do you ever look around and go, hmm, they're pretty weird allies to have, you know, so people just, you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily frustrating. Um, and, and I would just, like ask, you know, journalists, broadcasters, researchers, presenters, if you're going to actually enter into this discussion, first of all, ask yourself, why? Why are you chasing a quote unquote debate that has occurred somewhere else? And if it's for controversy's sake, if it's for, you know, oh, that'll do good business on the radio today, blah, blah, blah. We'll get loads of calls about that. Cop on. That's just not responsible. It's not responsible. Look at the mental health issues that trans people have to deal with because of transphobia. Look at the violence that people have to deal with. You know, look at the rate of suicidality in that, in that demographic. This is a small number of like oppressed, vulnerable people. And for everybody to be turning around and focusing a spotlight on that instead of the broader issues of straight male violence and patriarchy in general, cop on. And, and this kind of newfound you know, interest in like women's rights in sports or whatever. Why is that only of interest to people when trans people are involved? You know, did did any of these people who are now really exercised about that, were they out there campaigning on women's funding or the professionalization of women's organizations or increased women's coverage? No, it's just a stick, stick to beat trans people with. And when it comes to this, this kind of moral panic of trans women uh, in, in prison or whatever, that has everything to do with people committing crimes and nothing to do with their gender identity. This kind of thing that like if a trans woman is in jail, she's a risk to, to the rest of the prison population. It's a prison. 
Everybody is a risk to the prison population. That's why they're in prison. If a man sexually assaults another man, he's put in a male prison. What do we do to protect the prison population from him? Or, or a woman kills another woman. Woman. Is she not, uh, you know, is she not a danger to the prison population? These moral panics that are blown out of proportion and replicated and reiterated by people like Tucker Carlson and people like the, the, the fundamentalist uh, Christian right in America and the far right here. You know who was straight out of the, of, out of the blocks congratulating Brenda Co- uh, Power on her piece on, at the weekend? Herman Kelly, <laughs> you know, from the National Party. This is what you're told. These are your allies. You know, so it's so frustrating, Andrea. Like it's, it's really frustrating. People need to really step back and get off the fucking Internet for a second and wonder why when they're out in the real world that this has just become such a huge issue in their own heads. Because what I'm seeing from the type of madness uh, that has that has overcome particular uh quarters or, or, or individuals feels like, you know, the same kind of radicalization process that people entered into in this quote unquote, you know, the men's rights movement, you know, the Gamergate stuff, all of that, that you come out, you know, you're so consuming all of this kind of stuff that you just come out and all of a sudden you're like, it's, you're totally, it's, it's like your main issue, you know, get real. This is, this is basic civil rights. And, and I, I just I, I find it extraordinarily frustrating. A journalist of responsibility to um, to understand and not replicate as far as what I feel is is manufactured debate. Bit of change gear now. It's time for our favorites. So. Uh, <laughs> Popping along to some fave bits I had. Um, we missed some fave bits last week because we had a, a great byline. Um, so this one is um, the AVA stage in Belfast. I went to a festival up in Belfast called AVA. The stage was next level, um, especially Bicep performed on it with their audiovisual show. And my sister um, went to Belfast on Friday and then came back to Dublin to see Bicep again on Saturday. She's like, it was a world apart. It was just the production level was insane um, at AVA. And it was just a really great festival, great vibe. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of vibes. The Boiler Room stage was a lit all weekend. And yeah, I give it five stars. Uh, also, I'm hoping that this weekend I'm going to be given another five stars because body and soul is on and I am going down to see my queen, my my idol, my woman, Roisin Murphy. Now I haven't seen her in ages, so I'm really looking forward to finally getting an opportunity to to see what she's up to. Could do went to Berlin here, could do Zara in Dublin. Uh, but yeah, can't wait. Also looking forward to the Hennessy lineup of Body and Soul. Um, one of the highlights of the last Body and Soul that happened was Matt Man. He did a garage power air um that was like on wheels and I missed it. So I'm really excited to go to that and have a buzz at that. Um Dorky Book Festival delicious loads of really interesting people Annie Mack is coming over Louise O'Neill is talking about influencers um, um Patrick Frayne is talking about his book uh 
there was people Sally Rooney like loads of conversations also one of the main ones that I'm really excited about is how to solve the housing crisis that's going to be a talk I think a lot of people could maybe have a look at that one um, and speaking of solving things I watch On the Basis of Sex I don't know how I missed this before uh, it's about Ruth Bader Ginsburg it's not her documentary it is more like a Hollywood take on it on a certain section of her life and obviously it enhanced my love of ORBG but also like I was bawling at the end of it like empowered crying and we're like okay I need to change the world I need to do something like what I, I just I'm, I'm ready and it just really spoke and I, this isn't okay fine this is not uh, a new discovery but God, the power of art and film to really inspire and motivate you to do shit is mad isn't it Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, then uh, also Christopher John Rogers uh, launched his collection in New York. His continued success really is one of my fave bits. He was on our podcast and obviously that explains how he's done so well. Obviously not. Um, but I just love he stuck to his guns. He's like uh, really gone and challenged the fashion industry with what it can be. And uh, I just props to him. I'm really, I'm really inspired by him. And finally, my fave bit is that pilot programs were announced for six towns uh, where they will be appointing six night advisors. Uh, that's going to be rolling out. Minister Martin said the establishment of nighttime advisors in the six pilot towns and cities will be a significant step towards securing a vibrant and importantly, a more sustainable nighttime culture for all our citizens. Um, now that was kind of announced with a bit of fanfare, but um, it is worth notice, noting that that can't happen till the legislation around licensing has changed, which is looking like the end of the year. So it's 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 in the post, but the post still has uh, a good bit to go. Um, but also another fave bit of mine uh, was um, a graduate uh, award for publication design was awarded to Katie McKenna for her project Heaven is an Irish Dance Floor. Um, and it is a publication about how nightlife in Ireland is often degraded and demeaned by the people in charge of upholding it. Um, so definitely one to look at. Um, and fair play to her for her prize. That's in Limerick School of Art and Design. Deadly. My fave bits, um, Skipper's Alley at uh, Beyond the Pale this weekend. Beyond the Pale was loads of fun. Um, it looked re- so picturesque and beautiful. Yeah, it was gorgeous, like setting, like the stage, main stage was right in front of this like gigantic forest of trees. It was so gorgeous. Shout um, out to uh, the laser tits um, from illustrator Janet. Okay, I don't know what that like means. You had all those curvy girls and then there was, la- there was cutouts where lasers shot out of her nipples. Okay, amazing. Did you not see it? You no, were there. I, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> I didn't see it. Um, so Skipper's Alley were great. Um, Sean Renane, who was doing one of the Utopia Ireland events with me, um, who's an ornithologist and working on that Irish Wildlife Science project, we went on a bird watching walk after the talk and it was just so gorgeous, like strolling through this meadow, deers leaping around the place, herons flying overhead, buzzards, red kites, Woodpeckers. I mean, it was we were, went full Bambi. It was Who basically Gareth Snow White. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just little Tweety birds flying around my head the next morning. Um, I went to the RHA exhibition. Always really great visual art binge. Mm-hmm. Um, loads of really good stuff in there if you need to like stimulate your eyes and your brain. Um, 
speaking of stimulation, party scene is at uh, the Cork Midsummer Festival, 15th, 17th of June this week. And next week at the Project in Dublin. So that's a new, this is Pop Baby and Philip Connachton, Philly McMahon uh, production uh, dance piece about cam sex and various other bits. And it's really, really great. Um, this week is JLo week. Halftime, the documentary on Jennifer Lopez is out on Netflix. Today? Um, we're recording it on a Tuesday this week. So yes, it's out today. So <gasps> get involved. Oh my God, I am going down in my pyjamas to watch that. Sarah Jessica Parker on Awards Chatter is another of my fave bits. Awards Chatter, that uh, Hollywood Reporter podcast, always really interesting. And she just kind of goes through her career, a lot of like her child theatre career. And I just find it very interesting. She also talks a bit about Kim Cattrall um, on their, well, she doesn't call it an argument. Anyway, listen to it. It's good. And uh, yes, Andrea, I did go to see Top Gun Maverick. Woo! And um, it's a really, really fun film. I mean, obviously you have to park the whole um, weapons industry and military propaganda uh, part of it. Well, I do. And um, well, Tom Cruise has come out with a statement. He's like, to be clear, you should not be ignoring the politics of this film. It is not a fun blockbuster nor an escapist fantasy, but a clear, un- unequivocal celebration of US militarism. He Did he actually say that? Uh, he did or... Yeah. Wow, what? Oh, that's crazy if he said that. Oh, actually, maybe he didn't. Maybe somebody else did. No, I think, yeah. I mean... Delete, delete, delete. Delete, 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 delete. Um, um, yeah, it's a very well, beautifully kind of shot film and everything. Um, yeah, so it is a blockbuster. Take away the promotion of Jets. Um, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and Acastray Media. Crystal Clear gave us this tune chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. What is this week's tune and chicken roll? This week's chicken roll is Hi, baby, we're ascending. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that, and that was A I I I E A I A I and its ethics. Caught up in you.